0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sachin and Adam show. So today we probably have one of the most impressive guests we've ever had on the show, um, Mr. Mark Holtzman. So I'll give you a quick rundown of what Mark has done. Honestly, if we were to talk about his career and introduce it properly, would be the whole episode would be gone. <laughs> so I'll give, you, I'll give you a quick rundown. So um, Mark was one of the youngest um, ever per- people on a presidential campaign. He helped with um, Mr. Ro- President Ronald Reagan's campaign in Pennsylvania. He was then worked in banking. So he was a vice chairman of Barclays Capital and ABN EMRO and was a co-founder of a bank that was acquired by ABN EMRO. He then moved in um, towards the university working um, at the University of Denver. But I think um, one of the coolest things that Mark has done is starting a private equity fund and helping with the privatization of Russia, which is um, something that Adam actually read about in this book, which he'll touch on in a second. And um, at, at, the, at the present time, Mark does a lot of um, work in Africa. Um, he's worked in Kazakhstan and your current, um, your current work is in Rwanda. Is that correct?
1: Rwanda and Zimbabwe and Kazakhstan. Awesome. Awesome.
0: Yeah. So um, Adam's going to give you a
2: quick rundown about how we actually
0: came across <laughs> you, which is an interesting story, actually.
2: So I basically picked up this book called Red Notice about a month ago. And it's a book written by a guy called Bill Browder. And he was um, a sort of hedge fund guy who was working in Russia. And he was one of the first investors in Russia, sort of seeking opportunities there after the Soviet state sort of dissoluted in 1991. And the book is about sort of his incredible story of investing in Russia um, and exposing all of the corruption in sort of Russian companies and the oligarchs that were there. And it's, probably one of the most remarkable stories I've ever read in my life, just seeing sort of his narrative there and just some of the horrible atrocities he exposed. But in one of the chapters in the book, um, it's called it's number nine, sleeping on the floor in Davos. Um, Bill talks about how he met a guy called Mark Holtzman and they basically stormed into this sort of conference in Davos, which for the people that sort of don't know, this is where some of the most powerful leaders and billionaires meet and at Davos, um, Mark and Bill basically organized this dinner with the communist, lead, um, the communist leader at the time called, uh, I'm not sure if I get this right, but Jannetty Yuganov. And they organized this dinner with him and a bunch of other billionaires from around the world. And Bill gave Mark a really, really big rap in his book, calling him literally the most capable networker he's ever met in his life. So, we uh, sort of heard some very uh, interesting things And about I, I think this line is very interesting.
0: He could parachute into any developing country and within 24 hours secure meetings with the president.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so Mark, would love you to sort of paint a bit more color about this time um, at Davos and this whole situation that you found yourself in.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Sachin and Adam. It's a pleasure and it's a delight to be able to speak with you today. If I look back to that era, I should probably back up just a little further. So, I spent most of my 20s during the 1980s, first working in the Reagan campaign of 1980, and then helping to support his agenda, uh, in, working in Washington. And I got to a point in my life in uh, 1989, I was the flexible I ever thought I would be in my life. And every night on American television, uh, during that summer of 1989, there were these scenes on the evening news about the East German students escaping, uh, winding up in Hungary, and Hungary, along with Poland, being the first cracks in the Iron Curtain. Then, um, and so I went over to see what was going on, and you know I had no background really in finance or business. I had an economics degree from Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, and also two accounting courses. They have a saying in Eastern Europe that goes something like, in the Valley of the Blind, the One-Eyed Man is King. And I suppose that that might have well described uh, my situation in the summer of 1989. So I I first um, had the idea, and you know, one of these things where if you know too much about something, you might not do it. Uh, Ignorance was kind of a a big uh, plus for me at the time. So I spent Two weeks in Budapest as an economic tourist in the summer of 1989, and I came away just mesmerized. I had you just had a feeling that things were, uh, you know, very uh, electric and very, uh, very uh, uh, ready to pop in a good way, that things were changing, that you were at the cusp of transformation. So I came back, I told my parents, my friends uh, that I was moving to Hungary and setting up an investment bank. And most people later told me that they thought I'd be back a few months later you know, with my tail between my legs and uh, you know, ready to do something serious. I persuaded my best friend, a guy named Mike Marino, to, uh, who was a young vice president in the real estate division with Solomon Brothers at the time in New York to leave and join me. And the two of us, I'm very proud to say, created what, over eight years, became the, the one of the preeminent investment banking firms in Central and Eastern Europe. We were the first in Budapest. We were among the first into Prague and Warsaw. We weren't the first into Russia in 92, but we were early. Uh, and then uh, in 94, into Kazakhstan in Central Asia, which is a very interesting, fascinating, resource-rich uh, country between Russia and China. And then... Um, so, so at that point, uh, I met Bill in uh, 1991. We were doing a uh, an IPO. Uh, my colleagues and I did the first IPO, Central and Eastern European retailer called Tex, to go to the international equity market since World War II. And and this transaction, which we partnered with Solomon Brothers. We, we, we raised $53 million for the company. It was run by a very impressive Hungarian entrepreneur named Gabor Varsagy. Um, anyway, Bill at the time was working for a London-based fund and he was a young analyst and came to, to Budapest on the roadshow to see the company. I'm not sure if they ever invested or not, but it started a great friendship between Bill and me. And then in, in the mid-90s, we were, Bill and I were both living in Moscow. I moved from Budapest to Moscow to run the organization from there. And, and I saw Russia at the time as a tremendous opportunity. You know, Boris Yeltsin had brought in all of these reforms. And even though he personally had many shortcomings as the leader, uh, he, he, in, he differed from every other leader before him in the 20th century in Russia in that he wanted to move Russia inextricably away from communism. He didn't really know where he wanted to go, but he knew that everything in his past was was not good and was wrong and bad. I, I once said to Boris Yeltsin's daughter, Tatiana, I said, does the president really understand the reforms that he's unleashed? And she said, after thinking about it for a moment, she said, if he doesn't fully understand them intellectually, he feels them emotionally and intuitively. And that's the kind of leader he was. Well, in the beginning of the uh, reforms, the Yeltsin reforms, uh, there was a f- very Western-oriented free market prime minister named Yegor Gaidar, who was only 36 at the time. And, and it was those reforms that he started which, which uh, led the, the transformation of Russia. Now, many people can look back now and say that it wasn't a good outcome and that uh, assets weren't distributed fairly or evenly. Um, And certainly Putin has been a very different kind of president uh, moving away from Yeltsin's uh, uh, more liberal philosophy and free press and a place where the opposition took place. So I hope I'm not to just fill in a few more holes. In 1996, Yeltsin was, became the first Russian leader in a 1,000 years to, uh, to, to seek election before the people, and what most people uh, say was a very free and fair election, especially by Russian and, and Eastern European standards. Um, at the time, in the beginning of the year in 1996, it, was, it looked almost certain that Yeltsin was gonna lose. He was at 4% in the, uh, in the polls, and the, the leader, Gennady Zuganov, uh, of the Communist Party, uh, was saying that he was you know, pro-privatization, pro-free markets, and he was following the lead of some of the more reformed uh, uh, politicians that were coming out of the center-left in Poland, such as the very remarkable and dynamic president, Alexander Kwasniewski, who, as a former communist himself in the, in, in the late 1980s, 80s, uh, became one of the leaders of the transformation of the establishment of the equity markets and really laid the economic foundation for Poland to join NATO and the European Union. Uh, so there were people in the West, myself included, who w- was quite impressed by Zuganov. And I thought, you know, th- well, this, this, this might not be a bad outcome. It might, in fact, be a good outcome for Russia, because what we found was that that the people from the center-left, were more effective at implementation and execution, that, that the people coming from the right were, you know, sometimes Christian Democrats, they had been in opposition or, or illegal undercover uh, opposition, you know, for, for decades, and these people didn't have experience of government. And, you know, we saw these cycles in these Eastern European countries. Anyway, uh, so that that took us to Davos and, and it was, I always felt like because of my political background and interests in general, that not only did I want to get to know, but I thought it was in my business interest to get to know these people that might lead the country because you wanna have a firsthand insight into, into policies and how they're formed and you know what they're really talking about and how it's going to impact the the markets and growth, uh, uh, et cetera. So uh, I established a, a rapport with Zuganov. I, I was very surprised at how accessible he was about how easy it was to meet with him. I think most people would have otherwise been intimidated. I just basically called up, no, I don't even speak Russian, but I had a very good Russian speaking secretary at the time who helped me. Um, and and I, I got to know him and I, I said to him, I said, uh, Gennady, I said, are you going to go to Davos? You should go to Davos. And uh, um, anyway, Aspiration of mine to to be part of the World Economic Forum and to attend this meeting of the, you know, what looked like always the good and the great in the world. Um, but as Bill explained in his book, it, it, it wasn't so easy. But we figured it out. <laughs>
2: Wow, that's, um, that's quite a story of um, definitely that sort of uh, dinner that you organize. Just to mention, some of the people that were at this dinner were George Soros and Jack Welch at the time. Um, it seems like you have some crazy skills at connecting and uh, networking with people, especially people that aren't sort of in your inner circle. Well, how did you sort of do this? And is this like a skill that you developed in your political career? Was it something that you had from a, a very young age?
1: Well, it, actually, it's not something that came naturally to me. I'm more of an introverted person at heart, uh, you know, in, in a very extroverted world, uh, you know, the banking, finance, business, commerce, uh, uh, thing. You, you learn. So I think there are a couple of things I would say about that. Number one, if, if you want to establish networks of people and you have to do it from a very sincere and genuine perspective you have to really enjoy meeting people and i do and and then once you do uh, you have to be disciplined enough to establish a structure of keeping in touch with people in a very again sincere and genuine way not in a i mean you you'll hear these stories of people that you know w- want to form these linkedin lists and uh, and keep in, uh, you know reach out to people well the, what i always found in life was several things one is that by the time you needed a relationship, by the time you needed uh, to rely on someone to your benefit, if you didn't already have the relationship based on trust and goodwill and sincerity, it was too late. Uh, I mean, that's a very basic idea, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a truth of, of the world. And the second thing I learned is that once you have friendships, it takes a lot of work, it's a lot of effort, you know, to organize your, your contacts. I mean, there are people that say that in life that it's really hard to have more than, you know, 100 or 150 genuine relationships. And I guess I consider myself to be very blessed that my career has taken me to, to politics, banking and finance, back to government again in Colorado, and then to higher education as president of the University of Denver, and, you know, then back to business. And geographically, uh, I'm a big fan and aficionado of emerging frontier markets. So I had my experience in Eastern Europe and then I got to live in Hong Kong in the heart of the Asian tiger markets for seven years. And now for the last decade, Africa has been my passion. And and when you kind of overlap all of those concentric circles, you know, you find that there's, there, there is some overlap, but you know, it, it gives you the pleasure and the benefit of having a very broad base of people over life that you've gotten to know. And then it becomes, you know, a, 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 an effort. It's a big effort to, to maintain these friendships and, and relationships, and not everybody can do everything. Um, and and then, then the other thing that I would say is that, just back to uh, 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 that Davos in 1996, um, Zuganov told me at the time, and, and, and in fact, not only me, but the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the international media of the world, that he respected private property, that he was you know, for very positive on, on human rights, and that the property that had been distributed by Yeltsin, even if he didn't agree, that he wouldn't forcibly seek to expropriate or take it back. He even used words like there would be you know, blood in the streets. Well, that was one side of Zuga- Gennady Zuganov, who, who I happen to find a, a, a likable person. In, in, but then he would go on the Hastings and on the stump in Russia, in rural Russia, and he would talk about, um, you know, expropriating property, redistributing wealth. He would talk about. Uh, I mean, he was he was very hypocritical. Um, you know, he would he, he he would spew, which you know it, it went When I first met him, it was the opposite of what the guy tried to convey. So I quickly realized that this guy was not the real deal. Um, And as a result, uh, uh, you know, other than that breakfast, really distanced myself completely. In fact, I did everything I could to help the election effort. What happened in Davos that year was quite historic. And Bill talks about it in the book, um, which is, by the way, a courageous tale of probably one of the most impressive people of unlimited integrity and and an ability that I know, and that is Bill Browder. I mean, he's a remarkable person. I mean, he talks about in the for the Communist Party of America and ran for president against FDR. And yet it must be spinning in his grave over the fact that his grandson, you know, became the apostle of capitalism to, to Russia, running the biggest Western uh, uh, investment fund at one point having over 5 billion under management. But nonetheless, Back there and, you know, being be living in Russia and being maybe one of 20 or so expats our age. I mean, and there was a, an incredible group of people, Mike McFaul from Stanford University, who later went on to become the U.S. ambassador to Russia under Obama, Christia Freeland, uh, who uh, was the you know, correspondent for the Financial Times of London during all those years, uh, went on to become the, deputy, or the Foreign Minister and now Deputy Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, you know, I could take you through uh, any one of twenty of us that were there at the time, that uh, and 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 the alumni group w- was amazing. We used to always gather at this rather seedy pub in Russia uh, near the university, uh, the Moscow Economic University, called the Hungry Duck. It was known as the Duck. And uh, you know, if I could travel back in time to the mid nineteen nineties, and you know, we could all know where we would wind up in life. I think people would be uh, would, would 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 be very uh, uh, pleased. But and, um, you know, that was what happened was all of the oligarchs, there were about eight or 10 of them at the time that were the leading business people in Russia, understood that while none of them really liked Yeltsin, or none of, and they certainly didn't like each other, they liked each other a lot less, they figured that it was to their advantage to team up to reelect Yeltsin, that otherwise, Zuganov might take away everything that they had achieved. So. So Yeltsin miraculously won the first round and then the, the second round of that election. And, you know, it's uh, the rest is history. Unfortunately, you know, uh, I think that y- Yeltsin was really, in my view, a small D Democrat. And even though he was prone to alcoholism and he launched the war in Chechnya, which was probably unnecessary, uh, he, 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 his contributions to Russia were immense.
0: Yeah, that, that's incredible. Like, yeah, that's already quite a story there. <laughs> I, think that, I think that the two things that really stick out to me about you, Mark, is that you get yourself into incredible situations. And then when you're in those situations, you make things happen. So if we could wind, down, wind back the clock a little bit and talk about your time um, as a young man in America, um, helping out with Ronald Reagan's campaign, um, the, youngest, the youngest person ever in Pennsylvania, um, h- how did that kind of narrative go? So
1: what, what happened was basically this. The year was 1976. I was 16. Ronald Reagan was running for the presidency against Gerald Ford, who had, was the appointed president, uh, unelected president, after Richard Nixon resigned. He was a, a very nice, decent, genuine man, but not an inspirational leader. Uh, and of course, went on to win the 1970s, uh, lose the 1976 election to Jimmy Carter. So Reagan um, gave a speech, and and I was 16, never interested in politics. Uh, um, My parents, if anything, were two kind of liberal Democrats that had 1968 president. And I was sitting for some reason by some stroke of fate or fortune or providence or goodwill or whatever in front of the television set and saw Ronald Reagan give a speech that changed my life. And he deeply inspired me. He touched something inside me which resonated uh, uh, very strongly. And I remember calling the toll-free number, the 800 number at the end of the uh, speech and pledging $50. I had been working part-time selling cameras after school. and It was a lot of money to me. Uh, and then I got a brochure back that said, was a youth volunteer, you can go to the Republican National Convention in Kansas City and work for Ronald Reagan, which I did. Uh, I, I convinced my parents to let me go alone at age 16. And, you know, it was a safer, more a simpler world at that time. Um, and, I, and I worked my heart out stapling press releases and hammering signs and, you know, doing what needed to be done. And, you know, met some people there that were later to play a, a more key role in my life. But, um, in uh, early 1977, my father, uh, his, he was in the retail business in the United States, and he was part of a retail association that invited a political speaker every year, and I had started this pen pal relationship with Ronald Reagan, um, and he responded to me. I mean, I was quite impressed and, and, and privileged that I, I had established that, that relationship. And Reagan agreed to come as the speaker and in january nineteen seventy seven this he had lost the election to Ford Carter was about to be inaugurated and uh, and and my bonus was my father took me to Chicago with him and I got to go to the airport to pick him up and I can remember to this day going to gate f seven uh, the United Airlines terminal in Chicago and he walked off the plane and uh, um, and we were walking to the car and, and, uh, you know, no security, you know, he was carrying his luggage. I took one of his bags and, and, uh, anyway, it started And when I went to the next year, uh, in, uh, 1978 I persuaded my parents to reluctantly, they agreed to let me take a year off from university to go to work on the campaign. But they said two things. One is you have to get a job that, uh, will pay your something you know, so you can help support yourself. And secondly, uh, you have to promise to go back to university when it's over. So I agreed to both. I, my folks later admitted to me that they thought that in um, a short period of time that uh, Reagan would be out of the race and I'd be back at school in a semester. Well, it didn't work out that way, fortunately, for, for America, for the world, for me. Um, And I can remember Thanksgiving, which was American Thanksgiving, late November. Reagan had just won. And he came up to me in the transition office. He was entering the building and he saw me out of the corner of his eye and he gave me a big hug and he thanked me for what I had done. And he said, Mark, I want you to know you can come down here to Washington and do anything you want. But I have put the word out that no one will will dare hire you until you go back and finish your college. (laughs) (laughs) So, and 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 just a quick update. So, my first job was rather menial, and you know I was doing things that a young, 19-year-old would do. I I was working for Drew Lewis, who was the then uh, chairman of the campaign in Pennsylvania. He later went on to be the secretary or minister of transportation under Reagan and. uh, Um, And I I somehow worked my way to the attention of Bill Casey, who later became the director of the CIA, a very important figure in American history in the 1980s, in in the, you know, bringing down the Berlin Wall and, and things like that. And Casey had just been appointed. There was a big shakeup in the campaign, and he was made the campaign chairman. And I remember I was standing in the campaign headquarters in Washington one day, the Pennsylvania primary had just finished. And I went down to Washington with Drew Lewis, who became head of the Republican National Committee. Um, and, and, uh, and Casey looks at me and he had recognized me and he looks at me and says, hey, you, he said, and, and he throws me a pair of Avis car Renekees. He said, would you please find my car? He said, I've lost it. You know, and i said, Sir, do you remember And he was rather, uh, I was later to learn that was just his exterior, that he was really a big teddy bear and, and a lovely, lovely human being. Anyway, I, he, he had asked me to be his executive assistant. And, and, and you know, I found myself, you know, at uh, literally having just, I mean, just turned 20 at the center of, you know, this presidential campaign. And, and a, a few months later in August, Casey came to me and he said, we want you to go be the uh, executive director, the the basically the CEO of the campaign in Pennsylvania. I was twenty. I was barely shaving, and uh, uh, you know looked like I was about fifteen. And 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 in fact, there were some senior people in the campaign then that objected to my doing this because Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Ohio were the three top targeted swing states in the nineteen eighty election. And their their argument was not a bad argument, by the way, that uh, uh, that I would uh, give the impression that the Reagan campaign had written off Pennsylvania, <laughs> uh, you know, sending a young kid to run the campaign. But, and I remember on the, the first time, uh, Reagan came to, he, he visited Pennsylvania 13 times between the, uh, September one labor day and the, the, uh, election day over about 11 or 12 weeks. And each time, you know, I was re- involved in, in, in the visits uh, as well as other preparations so i, I met him uh, he landed in lancaster pennsylvania in august of 1980 and i met him at the airport and rode with him in the car to the first event where he 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 said to me he said mark you know you're doing a great job i've gotten fantastic reports he said we have every confidence in you we wouldn't given you we wouldn't give you this responsibility he said but you need to just understand that you know you're young and you look young and you're going to be giving instructions and orders to people many years your senior and i i don't know what possessed me to say the oldest man ever run for the presidency. When you look at Joe Biden, Reagan looks young, but there was a big issue, was he too old to, to be president? And it was a huge issue in 1980. And I said, Governor, you know, he was the former governor of Colorado, he had, hadn't yet been elected. I said, Governor, I said, I'm completely sensitive to this and I want you to know when it comes to the age issue, I think you and I both have a similar challenge on different ends of the spectrum <laughs> and I won't disappoint you, sir, <laughs> and he laughed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow, that's that's such an intense thing to do at a young age. Yeah. Just thinking, someone in t- at twenty years old. While they're at university, running a statewide campaign of someone that was going to become such an influential and important president um in american history like, uh, we're sort of already starting to understand where a lot of the skills which you sort of um showed at like Davos and in your later career, where they'll formed and how this whole narrative worked um It's absolutely fascinating yeah mark when's your book coming out <laughs> Well, <laughs> I had
0: to read it
1: <laughs> you're very kind. I will tell you this um if the, the one of the hardest things for me was going back to university. I mean, it was, it was just deadly uh, dull, you know, compared to, I mean, I don't know any other way to say it. And I love Lehigh. It's a great school. It's not, it wasn't a reflection of them. It was me. But, uh, uh, you know, so I finished, I had three years to go and I finished it in, in lesson two. I took overload you know credits uh you know double summer sessions i just wanted to finish and get down to washington uh which i did in early 1983 but uh um you know it was i feel myself very privileged to have been there i'll i'll never forget it was you know the uh 1983 when i when i started it was 20 years after the assassination of jfk and there were all television on the you know 20th anniversary of this nation um, and and I remember one day walking by the Oval Office and looking in and it was empty the president wasn't there and he had the resolute desk which the was the same desk that JFK had and I remember thinking how lucky am I you know to be here and I'm looking this is the desk where you know JFK worked where Ronald Reagan you know is president and you know and and to me, the, the the allure and the excitement and the stimulation never, never went away. And it, it did, though, I will say, say this, Adam and section it did for a lot of the people that were a little old. There were a few contemporaries, but, but people that were a few years older than I, still young, of course, in their 20s. It, it, it went away, and that's one of the things that prompted me in 1989 to not stay in Washington, to not remain in politics, and to kind of take the risky, you know, the road less traveled, as is, you know, sometimes said in a well-worn way, uh, you know, and, and to go to Eastern Europe.
2: Yeah, wow, that, that's absolutely fascinating. So uh, after all this time in Eastern Europe and sort of running the investment bank there, your life seems like it took a bit of a turn where in the sort of following years, you became president of the university of Denver. You did some work for the Kazakhstan's sovereign wealth fund, some work in Rwanda and a lot of sort of um, like uh, philanthropic work. Can you sort of paint a bit of a picture of how you sort of transitioned to that part of your life after that Eastern Europe life?
1: Yeah. So, In 1997, eight years after I went to Eastern Europe, my partners and I sold our business to ABN Amro, the Dutch bank. At the time, they were the, excuse me, to Mays Pearson, which was owned by ABN Amro, the 11th largest bank in in the world. And then we were later, uh, and and I for a year in, in, in London to try to help the integration of the business. But I got to a point in my life where I had spent you know, nearly nine years on the road, Adam, you know, you know, just grueling, uh, days. And, you know, I, and I, I also felt like I, it was a transient existence too. You know, I didn't, I mean, there was a point where I was just living in hotels all the time, you know, and, and, and it was, it was rough. And, uh, um, so uh, I, I had fallen in love with uh, the mountains of Western Colorado in uh, 1993. In fact, Bill Browder and two other buddies of ours went to Aspen to ski in Christmas 1993. And the story goes like this. None of us had any money. You know, We were all struggling to kind of build our businesses. And we got a, uh, a two-room unit for four of us at a place called the Snowflake Hotel, which has since been demolished it was one of these places where three floors up, if somebody used the plumbing, you know, flush the toilet, you know, all the pipes would rattle. And, uh, uh, and, and so I took one of the days to rent a car and drive around the area about 30 mile radius. And I found 50 acres of land, very reasonably priced about 20 miles from Aspen that I bought and built a, you know, a, a, a very nice log cabin and, and so that was finished in 1996, and I knew that that's really where I wanted to be, and and I I felt this draw to Colorado, not just for the skiing, but it's also a great place in the summer. You know, people say about Colorado, they 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 come for the winter and stay for the summer, and and so in I, I resigned from AB and Amro, or they, we actually uh, created. They 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 were very kind. They they kept me on as a consultant. that I agreed that I would live, resigned my full-time role, uh, moved in October of 1998 to, to uh, live there. And I was again, 38, wondering, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I knew I'd do something, but I wasn't sure. And then I was introduced to the then state elected state treasurer of Colorado, who had, was a Republican candidate for governor of Colorado that year, um, who had a great interest in Russia. He had been there 15 times as a tour guide and loved the place and loved the history. And so it created an immediate uh, connection for us and and, and basis for us to build a friendship. And he won and he became the first Republican elected in 28 years in Colorado. So there was no front bench of talent. And on the Friday after the Tuesday election, my phone rang, Governor Bill Owens, Governor-elect Bill Owens then called me and asked me if I would uh, join his cabinet. And I became the the secretary, like the minister of technology. It was a new job that he created. It was an economic development role to help build Colorado into a tech center. So I did that for nearly five years. And then that led to my being recruited by the chancellor of the University of Denver to be the president Uh, um, and then I, th- I would have stayed in that role longer. I enjoyed it quite a bit, even though it was a different kind of challenge, but I left in 2006 to become a Republican candidate myself for governor in Colorado. The, the outgoing Republican governor was limited to two four-year terms, so he was retiring. And it didn't work out for me, but I will tell you one of the lessons I learned is that you sometimes learn more from a losing effort than from a winning effort. Um, and my wife and I met through my work in Colorado and she's been the best thing that's happened in my life other than my four children. And, uh, and, and she and I just decided when it was over, you know, time to Well, in 2004, when I was at the university as president, 10th anniversary of the horrible Rwanda genocide in 1994, President Paul Kagame, the very dynamic, impressive, inspirational, uh, leader of Rwanda, who was the military general who stopped the genocide, who rescued the country and rebuilt it, um, he came to our campus to, to give a speech. We had one of the leading schools of foreign affairs in, in the world, uh, still do. Uh, in fact, it was started by Madeleine Albright's father, the former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright in the 50s, and I renamed the school for him, the Joseph Corbel School, during my presidency. And um, Condi Rice, who was later Secretary of State as well, graduated, got her PhD and undergrad from University of Denver. In any event, um, Kagami came, it's, I was deeply impressed by him, started a, a, a relationship. I would see him at Davos from time to time. And in 2008, I became vice chairman of Barclays and my wife and I moved to London. And President Kagami happened to be passing through London and saw this tiny blurb and buried beneath the fold in the second section of the London Financial Times and called me and invited me to Rwanda. And it changed my life. I had never been to Africa. And 11 years later, I'm, you know, chairman, I've am i been on the a board for 11 years. I'm chairman of the Bank of Kigali, the country's largest bank. Uh, it was a tiny, sleepy state-owned bank with 200 million in assets. Today it has over a billion US in assets. Uh, it was all government listed, traded. Uh, um, we have some of the leading you know, investment funds in the world as part of our shareholder base. You know, the share price is uh, nearly three times, and um, you know, it's it's been a huge success. And for but for me, it's it's been probably one of the most rewarding and satisfying things that I've had the opportunity to do. And it branched out to Ghana, Zimbabwe, other places where I'm playing you know similar roles. And uh, and I love the idea of the fact that Africa, a continent of a billion people, has the fastest growth rate in. Uh, So, in, in about fifteen years from now, there're to a billion people, and a middle class in Africa of hundred million today will probably be two to three or four hundred million, and, and it will be a bigger middle class in the u S. or Western Europe. And I see technology being leapfrogged over generations of legacy stuff in the us i mean it 's easier to settle a payment in, in, in our bank in Zimbabwe or Rwanda than it is through uh,
0: Citibank in New York today. <laughs> That's, that's absolutely incredible. I'd love to kind of touch on a little bit more about where you see Africa going, but I think right now it would be a good time to ask, um, over your incredible career, um, as, I, as we mentioned earlier, we have an audience of 18 to 25-year-olds. Well, what do you think have been the biggest learnings from your career? And if you could kind of touch on also, it seems that a lot of, a lot of the times you follow things of intuition. These opportunities present yourself and you just take them. So it, maybe if you can touch on that as well.
1: So a couple of things, Sachin, thank you for the question. I have always felt, and I've lived my life this way, and I've tried to inspire others to do the same, that there are three things that you should attempt to accomplish. One is try and make a lot of money. There's no shame in making money. I mean, it's a, it should be thought of as a very laudable, uh, positive uh, thing for people to do. Secondly, have fun doing what you're doing it life's too short and if you're not having fun and you're not enjoying your work and you don't have the kind of passion for what you do then try to find something else to do to realize that fulfillment and then the third thing and the most important thing is do well for others i am one who believes that you can't help yourself in life without trying to help others that a rising tide lifts all boats uh and, and and in that sense i think if you're if i were giving advice to to people your age and your position right now. I would say that try and where you can enrich yourself, you wanna do and money's not everything.
0: Sorry, um, Mark. If you, sure you Sorry, if you could quickly go back. Make sure you have fun. So if you could quickly go back and just lag just as you were about to say, um, you're the, the one thing you'd say.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I would say have, uh, try and make money if that's what you wanna do. Money's not everything. Yeah. Um, it's try to have fun uh, and and to find your passion. And if and, and if you if you can't easily do that, keep looking uh, and then thirdly, do well for others. I think it's very important to give back to the communities in which we work and to help other people. And I think it's it's impossible to do that without uh, without seeing some benefit accrue to other people.
2: Yeah, no, that, that's brilliant advice. Yeah, it's amazing and very, very pertinent life lessons. I think it's important and something maybe contrary about that first point of sort of making money and setting yourself up first. Because I think that at a lot of universities in our time, those aren't messages that people would readily say. I think people are a bit sort of dismissive of that. But I think it's a super important thing. And then sort of once you set yourself, um, really focus on helping others. Um, So I'm wondering where does the sort of future lie for you because it seems like a lot of your passion right now is helping developing and emerging markets and you can sort of see the passion in your eyes about the growth that some of these places are going to go through like you said Africa's middle class is it's just going to go sort of exponential over these next 10 and 20 years and we're seeing a lot of brilliant um, technologies especially payment technologies arriving in places like Kenya, Rwanda and Zimbabwe. So is this sort of going to be the focus of your life for the next Next chapter, this sort of, um, developmental side of things? Well, it's
1: hard to say, you know, I, I just turned 60 this year. Um, I've got, as I mentioned, four young children under 12. So that keeps me, you know, very active and, uh, and engaged. And, you know, I don't see myself retiring in the want to do that. Um, but I also, uh, I love living here in New Zealand and I love nature and I love hiking and biking and spending time with my children and being a chaperone at Cub Scouts and, you know, right now with my son on the alpine racing team or, uh, you know, the, the, the things that my, my girls do. So, uh, you know, from that point of view, uh, you know, I, I hope to serve as a, an example for them and to be able to inspire them to find their own passion, whatever that is, wherever it lies.
0: Yeah no no that's incredible. I think um as our okay. So I thought it would lag. As our kind of flagship last question, I know you've um, touched on this already. You've had such an incredible career. You've done so much. And I think a lot of our audience listening to your story, you're going to ignite a bit of a fire in their belly of just going out and doing going lots of, di- yeah, going on adventure and doing lots of diverse things. So if you could leave our audience with one singular thing from your experience, from your learnings, from your career, what would that be?
1: Well, never accept no for an answer. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, be respectful to authority. Uh, don't be an obstructionist. Uh, you know, work within the system to change the system, but at the same time, um, you know, don't say it can't be done. You know, it, at this time of COVID, you know, one of the people's favorite excuses is to say, you know, oh, gee, we we we're, we've been disrupted by COVID. Well, you know, something. That that that's not a good excuse, you know. And 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 I I would say that there are a lot of smart people in this world, Sachin, and and a lot of people with good ideas. But I would say ninety percent of success is is about execution. You know, it's about showing up. And and you know, I mean, there were people that told Bill Browder and me that we couldn't go to and you know just a funny addendum to that story. so I, I remember they were not very happy that we came and that we, we were there as kind of interluders and you know that we had our own dinner aside from their official agenda, but much to the credit of a remarkable, remarkable person named Klaus Schwab, who's become a dear friend and mentor in my life, who, the founder of the World Economic Forum, the person who started this whole thing in Davos more than 50 years ago, um, he reached out to me and instead of being angry or upset, he said, I'm really impressed by You've done what you've done," he said. "We'd like to invite you." In 1990, people chose Young Global Leader program. It was then called the Global Leaders for Tomorrow at the World Economic Forum in Davos. So I was able to legitimately go through the front door and 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 through that that experience, you know, I've met mentors like. Bill Gates and Michael Dell and uh you know the the class I was in included you know actors like Jodie Foster and you know people like sadly JFK Jr you know who's passed away but um you know it it but but it was because you know I didn't accept that it couldn't be done and and it it doesn't make you special you know but uh you know most of life is about can, uh, adhering to conventions and kind of going along to get along. And, and again, I, I want to restate, I think you, you work through the system to change the system, um, but just don't take no for an answer, you know, be respectful, be kind, be polite, but persevere
2: yeah yeah that's awesome i think that's so important right now because there's a lot of students that are sort of in that 18 to 25 year old age bracket and they're sort of worried about their future and there's a lot less jobs on the market and there's a sort of a lot of demand for jobs and so people might be saying well it's really difficult with coronavirus to sort of start a career but just hearing that message of like sort of not taking no for an answer it's been very abrasive sort of calling people up um just finding relationships in all these different places it's so important and it's a mentality that people have to have yeah
1: hopefully hopefully i didn't come across but anyway maybe that uh, wasn't the right word about, but so. i just
0: sort of like a go-getter yeah <laughs> and i think Um, For all our audience listening, if in the future me and Adam do something weird, like go to Morocco and start a private equity fund, Mark (laughs) is the reason why. So um, thank you very much, Mark. This was absolutely incredible.
1: Nice to speak with you. And thank you for this very interesting uh, discussion.
2: Thank you so much. Incredible.